a number of years ago, my wife and I were going out looking to, to buy a house. This was before anything over 500 square feet was being sold for a million dollars and before interest rates were what they are now, so we could actually afford to buy a house at the time. And as we were going to the first house that we went to, they had on the disclosure that they had had some uh, basement flooding, but they'd taken care of everything. And luckily, on the day that we went through the house, it was raining outside quite a bit. And as we walked into the house, we, we really liked a large part of the house. And then we went to the basement and we found out taking care of the problem was putting a fresh coat of paint on the walls because there was just water pouring into this basement and they didn't do anything, anything to take care of the overarching problem. On another day, we went down and we, we looked at a house and as our realtor opened the door to the house, it hit me and it was just this this overwhelming smell of cat pee that just hit me right in the face and I took a step into the house and I just I had to leave because I was going to I was going to vomit if I didn't it was so intense it was so intense and we watched because we we bought a house not too far from where that house was and we watched as that house eventually was sold and now the people that first bought it first came in with a, with a crew of painters and just tried to paint over everything like that was going to take care of it. And then the next thing you know, they had to rip everything out of that house because of the smell. You know, sometimes in life, we, we come to these situations and it's like, well, we can, we can fix this and we can fix this easily by, we'll just paint it. Put a, put, a new, put a new coat of paint on it. We'll make something look new. We'll make, it look, we'll make it look flashy. Everything will be made new and everything will be fine. Think of the effect that, that a new coat of white paint can have on something. It makes it look fresh. It makes it look clean. It seems like this is, uh, this is something that's new and it's all right. And we can do that in our lives as well. We can do that in our relationships all of a sudden, we're with somebody, and we don't know why we're with that person other than we made a vow. But we're looking at that person. We're like, I don't love you anymore. So we, we try to fake it. We try to, we try to make, make something there that isn't. So we try to spice things up, or, or we try to just tell them, we love you, we love you, we love you, even though really we're thinking, I don't want to be near this person at all. We do this... In our lives, we live in a culture that wants to promote themselves as everything is perfect. And so social media, in a lot of respects, has just become the, let me show you how amazing my life is, where behind the scenes, everything is spiraling apart. But we, we project that everything is perfect. And the reality of our circumstances and our situations is far from it. I have a friend that anytime something in life just happens where, where there's a giant mess, he just laughs and says, ah, put a fresh coat of paint on it. Like, that'll take care of it. And we know how ridiculous that sounds. And yet, it's still something that we all have tried from time to time. Where our life is spiraling out of control, things aren't what they should be, but we want to project that everything is great. And so we pretend, and we promote ourselves in such a way to make it appear 
as though everything is perfect. We've been walking through the book of Acts. We've seen the early church as it developed, as the hope of Jesus spread across multiple regions. And we've been walking through the book of Acts, and that's what we're going to continue to do today. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It's a free resource that you can find whatever app store you utilize. And once it's installed on your device, one of the features we use here every week at Lakeside is called Events. And there you can either enable your locations or type in Lakeside Community Church Algoma. You'll be able to follow along with us right there on your phone or your device. If you have a traditional Bible with you this morning, again, we're walking through the New Testament book of Acts. Acts is the fifth book. And the New Testament, right after the first four books, which are all Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the next book is the book of Acts. And this morning, we're going to be diving into Acts chapter 23. If you're joining us via the stream this morning, thanks so much for joining us. My name is Brian. I'm part of the team here at Lakeside, and the verses will be available for you on the screen below. Before we dive in, which we're going to in just a minute, I just want to remind you of where we've been so far in the first in the first 22 chapters of the book of Acts. We saw that the hope of Jesus has spread. We've seen that God has done some extraordinary things through people who did incredible things. And what we saw was those people were ordinary people just like you and me, that God chose to utilize. And they had hopes, and they had dreams, they had fears. They had all of the things that we have going on in their lives as well. And yet God used them to accomplish some really incredible things that we've seen documented and detailed for us throughout the book of Acts. In the first part of Acts, there's more focus on the disciple who became the apostle Peter And in the second part of the book of Acts, that focuses more on Paul. Paul, who went through a radical transformation in his own life. He was now a follower of Jesus, and he took the hope of Jesus across various regions. And we've seen him run into trouble because people didn't like his message. So he's been arrested, and he's been beaten, and he's been tried, and they've tried to kill him. And in the midst of one of his defenses is where we pick up the story today in Acts chapter 23. We'll start in verse 1 where we read these words. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God and in all good conscience up to this day. Remember the journey of Paul, that he was Saul and he radically opposed people who proclaimed the hope of Jesus. In fact, he was there on the scene where Stephen, one of the early followers of Jesus, was killed because of his faith. And not only was he there, but he was there and he was approving everything that transpired and everything that took place. And then he made it his life's work to go and to arrest people, to break up families and to imprison people because they were followers of Jesus. And he went and he imprisoned men and women all because they had placed their faith and trust in Christ. And he was on his way to do just that when God supernaturally appeared to him and revealed that Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah, the one that Saul had rejected. 
and then Saul recognized how Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and he was the Messiah, so he became a follower of Christ's. And then he went around proclaiming the very message that he at one time vehemently opposed. And as he went around and as he spread that message, that's where we've seen all of the trouble. And here he is now giving his defense. He's already detailed in Acts chapter 22, which we looked at last week, the story of, the, of his journey and how God has worked in his life up to this point. And now here he is as he's giving his defense and he says this, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And I wonder... Can we say the same thing? Can we say that I live my life before God in all good conscience? Because what this requires, if we're going to make that statement and mean it, is it requires us to live lives of authenticity, it requires us to be real. To put much more emphasis on who we actually are. And to not care so much about the perception of who everybody thinks we are. Because we live in a society where all of the emphasis is on the perception. All the emphasis is on what does everybody else think and say about me. And we put very little emphasis on who we actually are, whether or not we're men and women of integrity, whether or not we do what's right, even when no one's looking. All the emphasis of our culture and society is on, well, I need people to think that my life looks like this, and I need people to have the perception of me that is this. And when we live authentic lives, if we're going to be able to make this statement, then what we recognize is it's easy for us to sell a lie. It's easy for us to put all of our attention and all of our focus on selling the perception of who we are at the expense of us really legitimately being concerned that we are men and women of integrity, that we are honoring God with the choices that we make, that we are worried and concerned about our conduct, that we strive to honor and please God instead of striving to make sure that everybody, when they look at my social media, thinks, I have a perfect life. And they're jealous of what I do. It forces us to be countercultural. And it forces us to recognize that the perception that people have of us isn't ultimately what matters. Because that can be easily faked. And if we're going to worry about the perception and not the reality, then we're going to have people fooled along the way. But what God has called us to do as people that love and follow Jesus is to follow Him. Which means we try to honor God with the choices that we make. We strive to be people who do the right thing, even when nobody's watching. We strive to live our lives in such a way that we don't necessarily worry about what everybody from the outside looking in thinks and concludes. If we're going to be able to say that we have lived our lives before God in all good conscience, 
And we don't get to hide certain aspects of who we are and what we do. We are consistent. And we live lives of integrity. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him, Paul, to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? So, Paul is giving this defense before the Sanhedrin, a group of religious people, and one of the members of that is Ananias. He's the high priest. He made sure that everything was operating according to how it should, and he hears what Paul says about himself and about living his life before God in all good conscience, and he says, punch him in the mouth, which I don't know about you, but that's a marked me of a productive church meeting like when things are a little i don't know yeah just punch jacob in the face you know like yes that's a successful successful no no it's not how we operate it's not just because we're more civilized it's not how anybody should have operated and ananias is so furious because of the message that paul is proclaiming and because he has He's had an encounter with Jesus. And he recognizes the hope of salvation. So he says, I can stand before God in all good conscience. And Ananias is so irate by this. He orders people to punch Paul in the face. And how does Paul respond? In a way I love. He says, you punch me in the face, God's going to punch you in the face. Like, yeah, that's, that's my people. That's my people. And then he says, you whitewashed wall, which in terms of insults, I think we all could agree. Ah, you could probably do a little bit better. But think about what Paul's just said here. When he calls him a whitewashed wall, what he has just said to Ananias is you're a phony. You're a fraud. You're a fake. Whitewashing is the process that we've all seen, we've all done. It's where things aren't what they should be. And so we just act like everything's okay. We go through life in a mode where we aren't authentic and we aren't real. That's what it means to be whitewashed. In the same way that you would take something that's dirty and broken and you just throw a new coat of paint on it and all of a sudden it looks new. That's the way that Ananias lived his life. And Paul looks at him and says, God's going to strike you. You are fake. You are fraud. You are inauthentic. That's your reality. And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, Paul can't, people can't believe how Paul responded here. And the reason they can't believe that is because Ananias is a high priest and he's in a position that should be respected. And they, they're aghast at what Paul has done. 
And, and Paul's in this situation where he says, I did not know, brothers. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Maybe it's a high-stress situation. Maybe there's a lot of people around. Maybe you're in a hurry. Maybe it's somebody you're kind of familiar with, but not fully familiar with, but you think you're familiar with. So Paul certainly knew who, who the high priest but trying to figure out all of that in light of the trials, in light of all the traveling he's been doing, here he's having this, this audience, and, and there's this dynamic. And if you've ever been there, you know how awkward and uncomfortable it can be. A while ago, I was in a store, and the store owner's there, and I, his name is Fred, and I know his name is Fred. I'm very aware that the man's name is Fred. I've talked to him before. I walked into the store, and, and there he was, and I'm talking to him, and for whatever reason in our conversation, I called him Jeff. I know Jeff is not his name. I know his name's Fred. He didn't correct me, and the problem is it wasn't once. I called him Jeff like 10 times in a three-minute conversation, and I left the store, and I'm driving home, and all of a sudden, just in the middle of the road, I'm like, his name is Fred. Like, it just hit me. Like, I know what the man's name is, but for whatever reason, in that dynamic, I just, I blanked. And so I made the only reasonable conclusion. I, I did the only reasonable thing you can do. I've avoided that business ever since. And if you live in a major metropolitan area, that's fine. But we don't have all those options, so if this keeps happening, I don't know what I'm going to do from here because it's just, it's an awkward dynamic. And, and here is Paul, and he's responding to Ananias, and people are aghast at how he responds. He says, I, I didn't know. I didn't know that he was the high priest. And, and we have no reason to believe that that's a sarcastic response because of the next part. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul lashes out. People hear it. And they say, I can't believe you just did that. And notice what Paul does. He doesn't try to shift the blame. And say, well... Remember, Ananias just a moment ago said, punch me in the face, so kind of insult him, kind of fair. He doesn't just say, well, I didn't know, so it's not my fault. I can't be held responsible. No. He says, I didn't know, and then he goes to Scripture and he repents. And we live in a culture and we live in a society where no one wants to take responsibility for anything and everything is always somebody else's fault or they pushed me to do it or it's their fault. They need to take responsibility. And as people that love and follow Jesus, here's the reality. We are not going to be perfect. We should strive to be perfect, but we are all broken, flawed people who are not going to be perfect. And hopefully... 
We have people who love us and love Jesus, who will come around us, and when we mess up, we'll be willing to point that out. And when that's pointed out to us, that we would have a posture of repentance, that we wouldn't be quick to try to be like, well, they deserved it, or here's why. But when it's revealed to us that we have failed to measure up to the standard that God has set for us, that we would be quick to receive that. And we would repent. And that's how we grow. That's how we become stronger in our faith. That's, that's one of the ways we grow closer to Jesus. And we live in a culture, again, where nobody wants to accept responsibility and everything has to be somebody else's fault. And, and it's always on somebody else. And as people that love and follow Jesus, let's just realize that, yes, we want to strive to be perfect, but we're not going to measure up to that. And so when somebody is willing to lovingly point out a way that our life can grow to become more like Jesus, let this be our posture. We don't have to be defensive. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So we've got to understand the group that Paul is addressing here. And this is a group called the Sanhedrin. And there are people there who have different viewpoints on spirituality. And this group is divided amongst Pharisees and Sadducees. And, so, and Paul recognizes that the Sadducees and the Pharisees are divided, and so he does something really smart. He appeals to their divisions. He appeals to their divisions. And all of a sudden, the group of the Sanhedrin, they begin to focus on their differences. Now, the Sadducees, just to give you a little bit of background so you understand what's going on here, the Sadducees were a group of people who, who followed God, but they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, what's it's it's called the Pentateuch or the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the only five books that they accepted. So they didn't accept any of the, prof any of the prophets. They didn't accept any of the wisdom literature, the Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. They didn't accept any of the historical records, Kings and Chronicles, Samuel. They didn't, they didn't acknowledge any of those books as being Scripture. It, for them, it was only the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As a result of that, these were people who were spiritual, but they, were, they wanted to be spiritual people without any supernatural aspects of God. As verse 8 tells us, they denied any resurrection, so they certainly wouldn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in anything spiritual. They wanted God basically on terms where they could put God in a box so that they could fully explain and understand how God operated and how he would work. They wanted a God on their terms that they could fully understand and explain. 
The Pharisees, on the other hand, while they hadn't come to a place where they had accepted that Jesus was the promised Messiah at this point, they were open to God doing supernatural things. They had... They hadn't come to terms with the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah yet, but the Pharisees were people who were willing to acknowledge that God is greater than we can fathom and greater than we can understand, and God can accomplish the supernatural. God is able to do some of those things. So those are the divisions between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, some of the Pharisees, we're just told, are open to the possibility that Jesus is the Messiah. They're open to the possibility of the message of Jesus that Paul was proclaiming, which means these people are spiritual seekers. And this now causes mass chaos. It is now massively chaotic. And the tribune takes Paul out of the meeting because they're worried he's about to be killed. The following night, the Lord stood by him, by Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul is just taken out of this gathering because they're worried he's going to be killed. And God appears to Paul and he tells him, hey, take courage. Because I'm not done with you yet. Which on one hand is incredible. Because all of us who love and follow Jesus know there is nothing more exciting there is nothing more exciting than serving God. There is nothing more exciting than living out our purpose and getting to, to be used by God to accomplish something that is greater than us, that is bigger than us, and to be part of God accomplishing what He desires to happen. There is nothing bigger and better than that. Nothing at all. So on one hand, this is incredible. And on the other hand, You've just been pulled out of a room where people are trying to kill you for proclaiming the message and the hope of Jesus. And God says, hey, what you've just done in Jerusalem, we're going to go do in Rome. On the other hand, you're like, can I get a vacation? Can I just have a break? I've been arrested. I've been beaten. Tried to beat me again. People have tried to kill me. We're going to have to do this again? When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. 
Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. This are not just a couple unhinged people behind a keyboard hiding out in their basement. This is 40 high-ranking Jewish officials who are now coming together and saying, we vow not to eat or drink again until Paul is dead. We are going to combine our forces. This is the plot. And there is now a full-blown assassination plot to take out Paul. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are laying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Paul's nephew finds out about this plan, and Paul told a guard to take his nephew to the leader of the guards. Paul's nephew tells the tribune, and the tribune tells the nephew not to say anything to anyone. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him. I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Now, why? Why do we, why do we take time to look at this? Well, one, it gives us incredible historical precedence. It lets us know exactly details that are going on in Paul's life. But let's be honest, most of us aren't going to be called by God to do something where we're going to be arrested for it. That might change. But most of us aren't going to be in a situation where we're arrested because of what God has called us to do. Most of us aren't going to be in a situation where our lives are in jeopardy because of what God has called us to do. But all of us who love and follow Jesus are called by God to be used by Him. And sometimes God's going to call us to do things that aren't easy and aren't pleasant. Just because something isn't easy 
or fun or just because there's opposition doesn't mean that God isn't blessing it. In fact, we can be assured of the fact that God that if God is calling us to do something, we will face opposition. And if we've somehow convinced ourselves, well, if God's called me to do something, then it has to be easy, and everything has to work out perfectly, and the second it doesn't, we just throw in the towel and say, oh, well, I guess God didn't really call me that because he didn't bless me. Then we're never going to be effective in being obedient to what God calls us to do. But, we look at this for another reason as well. And that we'll get to in just a minute. But I just want to make sure you understand here. Now we have almost 500 soldiers who've been assigned now to make sure that Paul is taken out safely. And the plan is that at the third hour of the night, that's 9 p.m., their days wouldn't start at 12 like ours do. Their days would start at 6. So the third hour of the night is actually 9 p.m. They're going to get Paul on a horse and take him to Felix, the governor, along with a letter explaining to him why Paul is coming to him because they had to get Paul out of the situation that he was in because 40 high-ranking Jewish officials are trying to murder him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, when they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him, when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that it was that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arise. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, Antipatris is 40 miles north of Jerusalem. Herod's praetorium is also Felix's residence. Yes, God will call us to do hard things. Yes, sometimes serving God will be difficult. But if it's God's will, it's going to happen. And the opposition that has power and has prestige and has position and all of their planning, all of the opposition you face, all of the difficulty, all of the hardship, it isn't going to succeed if it's God's will for something else to happen. It doesn't mean that every aspect of serving God is going to be pleasant or easy. But if God calls us to accomplish something, and He wills it, it's going to happen. And why this matters for us so much is because we can't believe that at the first sign of difficulty or hardship or trouble, we just have to throw in the towel. 
And this is why who we are, who we really are, not the perception that we put out there, and not the perception that we put out for everybody else to see, but who we are authentically as people matters so much. Because if we're the real deal, and if we walk in integrity, and if we live authentic lives, if we're quick to repent when we mess up, and recognize that we have areas to grow, we position ourselves to be used by God And to get to partner with God, not because He needs us, but because He chooses to use, use us. And seeing His plan unfold. This is why it matters who we really are. Because if we serve God, and if we follow after Him, we are called to live lives serving Him. We're going to face opposition. It's going to be difficult. We need to recognize that and prepare for it. And not quit at the first sign of trouble. God, I pray that we would be people who live authentic lives for you. That we are people of integrity. That when we mess up, we're quick to repent and do things your way instead. I pray for the people here, God, who are in the midst right now where you've called them to do something and there's opposition and there's hardship and there's turmoil and there's trouble. And I pray that your spirit would just empower them. I pray that, God, it would encourage their hearts and I pray they would not quit. I pray you'd bless their efforts. pray they would recognize God that who they are with you is even more important than what they will accomplish for you. So God, I just pray that we would live authentic lives. We'd stop worrying about what's projected And we would be much more concerned with honoring you. That we would be the real deal. And that you would then accomplish great things through our lives for your glory. You would use us, Jesus. That we would see you transform lives, alter stories, the hope of your message spread across this region, 
and that it would start with us. As people who want to accomplish something great for you, as people who honor you with our lives day in and day out. Use us, we ask, for your glory.